Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, who have we got on today? I'm so excited. I was really, really dead keen to do a show on the civil rights movement um, and on on American history from that point of view. And uh, the lovely Allegra Jordan has done more running for us um, in the States and has come up with um, a wonderful guest for us. So William Sturkey is an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina, where he teaches Southern and African-American history. But what we really want to talk to him about is his latest book. So he's written the story of a town called Hattiesburg. And basically what it is is the story of Jim Crow told through the idea uh, through the eyes of one Mississippi town um, William welcome thanks so much for having me it's, I'm very happy to be here oh it's a pleasure and how are you doing in lockdown in North Carolina I'm doing okay I'm actually writing a good bit I'm trying to teach as I can uh, so you are you uh, on zoom basically all day with your students <laughs> No, I'm not on there quite all day. There are some hot spots in the afternoon, but my mornings are usually pretty tame. So for the benefit of a mostly non-US audience, what are we talking about when we speak about Jim Crow? I mean, your father was born into the system, wasn't he? Yeah, so mostly what we're talking about is this system of racial apartheid that privileged white citizens over black citizens in the American South between roughly about 1877 to 1965. Some of those dates are disputable, but, you know, definitely during a huge part of the 20th century. And um, anybody that lived in this system was affected by it, whether you were white or black. You were taught that there was this racial hierarchy that, of course, affected what school you could go to, what sort of job that you could have, whether or not you could vote in certain places. And, of course, it's this very system that the civil rights movement led by Martin Luther King Jr., sought to tear down. Um, and where does the name Jim Crow come from? Um, it's sort of this, uh, it's, it's not very specific. It's a sort of minstrel character. So they did a lot of blackface performances in the South, making fun of African-Americans. There would be these traveling groups. And one of the characters commonly played was known as Jim Crow. So it's largely named after that that sort of myth, that mythic individual. And um, so in your book, you alternate from the African-American perspective to 
to the white um, chapter by chapter, which is not common, is it? To look at how Jim Crow affected everybody, um, in particular to talk about how white people were beholden to this culture too, even of course if they benefited from it. You can't argue that it didn't influence their lives, can you? No, you really can't. And that's one of the things that I think a lot of people get wrong. You know, we, we have a lot of studies that look at the history of Jim Crow through one perspective or the other, or the history of the civil rights movement through one perspective or the other. But in many small towns, like in Hattiesburg, these folks were really actually in close contact with one another. And it was this constant sort of dance. Now, one, one group of people obviously led and controlled much of the dance through all these various means. But at the same time, they were also affected by it, right? They also had to sometimes negotiate what was happening with race in their town. And then also, you know, black people learned all these lessons of inferiority, but the way that the system operated, it really poisoned the minds of a lot of white folks too, because, you know, their society was dictated by this sort of lens of race and they saw nothing else outside of that. And sometimes the things that they did were, were quite ridiculous and really counter productive, but it's because they were always shaped by this veneer of race that just dominated their thinking. Um, did you find that there was a difference in trying to find source material for the, the different stories, the white story and the African-American characters in your book? I'm really interested in, I've heard you talking elsewhere about the Chicago Defender and how you were able to use it to write about a town miles away in Mississippi and how this northern newspaper managed to transcend Jim Crow and, and tell the story of African-Americans. Yeah, and, you know, this is something that is, um, for people that, that don't study history, it's, it, it might be completely different than what you're used to, but studying, even though I was studying the history of this town, studying black and white history in this town, is, are, it's almost like studying two completely different genres of history. And that is because the, the, the white community, there was a university there, and so the white community could deposit their records in the university archives. The university was segregated until 1965. And so, you know, if you were in the Chamber of Commerce or if you owned a sawmill or if you were some sort of prominent citizen, then when you died, your diaries and your letters and everything else would usually go to that archive. But because that archive was also led by people who were themselves segregationists and or white supremacists, they weren't interested in collecting artifacts from the black community. And so if you were a leading African-American, your diary, your letters did not go to that archive. And that itself was a product of Jim Crow. So here I am, 100 years later, trying to piece back together these lives, and I have all the white records I could ever want. But because these records were collected 100 years ago, it's very different to try and find black records. The other issue is that they live, African Americans lived in a floodplain. So even if somehow records survived from 1910 to 1950, let's say, you know, there were floods in the 60s and 70s that could have consumed images or letters or whatever. But the other interesting thing, too, is that this society was so rigidly segregated that they were segregated in the newspaper. The newspaper for decades and decades just didn't print much news from the black community. And because of that, African-Americans would often send news from their community to northern newspapers, especially the Chicago Defender. So the Chicago Defender had a national edition that was often shipped down on railroads and distributed in black communities. In Hattiesburg, the folks were just nuts about the Chicago Defender largely because they would send news from their community to be printed in the Chicago Defender. 
And so because they weren't included in the regular mainstream newspaper, they got to see those highlights there. And I've got, you know, records of, you know, a, a lot of major events in the town, like the construction of a new church or the construction of a new school or a large fundraising event. But then you also get things like a cakewalk or, you know, a birthday party or an engagement party where people were just dying to get their names in the newspapers and see reports from their community. And they could do that through the Chicago Defender. And so because I can now search the Chicago Defender, I was able to find somewhere between 400 and 500 updates from the Black Hattiesburg community in the Northern newspaper, hundreds of miles away. That's absolutely incredible. I love listening when historians tell us where they get their sources from. But could you tell us a little bit more about the Smith family? Uh, You've built the book around them. And why did you decide to do this? So the Smith family is an African-American family that moved to Hattiesburg in 1900 and lived there for several decades. They're a pretty prominent family in the local black downtown. One of the older brothers was a doctor, another was a pharmacist, and they were very active. And so I wanted to have a protagonist in the black section. Like I said, it's a different, it's a whole different genre to write about black and white. So it was harder to piece together black sources. But I wanted to be able to deliver some sort of perspective from the Black community that readers could um, sympathize with. And so the Smith family is this pretty remarkable family in that the patriarch is a formerly enslaved uh, man who was also a former sharecropper who walked off a plantation to go to college. And he has four sons who become doctors, which is just incredibly remarkable for a formerly enslaved man to raise four kids who become doctors in the Jim Crow South, especially in Mississippi. And so because they were more prominent, because they were leaders in their community, they left behind more records that I could then trace. So in terms of thinking about, you know, who can I build as a protagonist into this narrative, it became clear to me after a number of years that the Smith family offered a chance to do just that. And so I largely take you through this journey in Hattiesburg through their eyes. They're not famous for their involvement in the civil rights movement, but they're very well known for everything that they did in the black community in between 1900 and roughly 1950s, 1960s. And they're also all over the black newspapers that I was talking about. They're all over the Chicago Defender, but I actually found a record from Turner Smith, the patriarch, going back all the way to the Indianapolis Freeman in the year 1908. And I know that he was in a debate society in this church that he, he and his children helped build, which is, you know, it's fascinating to me because I can build layers of context and texture in their lives that I just couldn't do without those sorts of records. Yeah, it's just incredible. You taught in Hattiesburg, didn't you? And why did you choose it? And why is it the perfect place to choose as a setting for this type of book? Yeah, I taught in Hattiesburg during my last year of graduate school. And I, um, that, was, that, was, that was a very difficult year. I worked a lot. So I was writing my dissertation, teaching um, three classes each semester. But I was, that's not why I chose Hattiesburg. I, I took the job because it was in Hattiesburg. But I chose Hattiesburg because of what happened there during the Civil Rights Movement, actually. If, if, if I could just take you for a minute to July 2nd, 1964. Sure. In this day, it's, it's an incredible day in American civil rights history. Um, it's Medgar Evers birthday. It's the birthday of Aaron Henry. It's the birthday of Thurgood Marshall, famous NAACP attorney. 
And it's also the day that Lyndon B. Johnson signed the, signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But in Hattiesburg, it's also the first day of Freedom School. And the Hattiesburg Freedom Schools were part of this Mississippi Freedom Summer, this massive civil rights demonstration where they brought in all these white volunteers from the North to help these folks in Mississippi. And Hattiesburg, they expect they're gonna get a few dozen Freedom School students at first. And all of a sudden that first day, five or 600 kids show up. And the kids just come pouring into these churches. They're so excited about joining the civil rights movement that they've been hearing about throughout their community and, and in local and national news. And at one point, so many kids come to the schools that they actually have to close registration. They say, sorry, we can't take anymore. And the students start sneaking their friends into the basement of the churches to get them into the schools. I'm just so amused by that. Students sneaking their, their friends into school as opposed <laughs> to out school. And one of the men who comes, there are also a few older people who come. One of the men who comes is a man who's 82 years old. And he's there with these five, six, seven, or eight you know, year olds. And he says, when somebody asked him why he came, he said, I just want to learn how to register to vote. He lived in that town his whole life and he never cast a vote. He just wanted to learn how to register to vote. And I was so compelled by what those freedom schools meant and what they could be. And I thought I was going to write a book about that moment because it was so powerful. Mm. And I sat down and I started thinking about, okay, how do we get here? What is What exists beforehand that leads to this energy that creates all this momentum, you know, when this thing just kicks off in July of 64, where do those churches come from? What happened in that community beforehand? And ultimately answering that question became the book. So the book is largely about what it, exactly what happened in those churches and about the people that built those churches that then gave way to that civil rights movement. So, yeah, your book talks about Hattiesburg from the 1880s through to the time of the civil rights movement. Tell us about the early history of the town and how it was established, because it's a late bloomer, isn't it, compared to towns that are nearer the Mississippi River? Yes, absolutely. So Hattiesburg is a new South town. So when we think about the South, old South towns pretty much had to be on water because they did not have a lot of railroads. So new South towns are places that are more inland. Um, I'm overgeneralizing, but this is, this uh -huh. is generally true. Places like Birmingham, Hattiesburg, Asheville, North Carolina, Durham, North Carolina, Dallas, Atlanta, those were all towns that either did not exist or were very, very small before the Civil War, including Atlanta. And so Hattiesburg exists as Northerners come in to invest in railroads. And they invest in railroads all over the South. They build tens of thousands of miles of railroads. And Hattiesburg is founded along a railroad line that is built to go between New Orleans and Cincinnati. So steamboats, of course, have been making that trip up and down the Ohio and Mississippi River for many years. But steamboats took four days or so, and they all, steamboats had a tendency to explode at times, and they got caught on sandbars and all these other things. Railroads completely revolutionized travel in the South. In some places, including Hattiesburg, they cut through forests. And as the United States sought a new source of lumber, the South is opened up to railroads. And people realize, of course, you can harvest lumber anytime you get a railroad through the town. So Hattiesburg is founded by this, by this guy who sees a new opportunity coming in the American lumber industry. And the South for about 30 years was the epicenter of the American lumber industry. And so the town is founded there as a railroad and as a lumber town in the 1880s. As the economy develops, segregation becomes a problem, doesn't it? And how do they get around it? 
Well, there are a few things that, you know, segregation protects white status in a number of different ways, mainly through job segregation, um, things like that. But the thing is, there's Mississippi was predominantly black for 100 years, 1840 to 1940. And so anytime that you're just removing a majority of people from the possible workforce, employers don't always desire that. Um, that isn't quite an issue with, with lumber and railroads, although black, there are more black men that work in lumber than there are white men in, in places like Mississippi and Louisiana and Alabama. But as you get into a more modern economy, as the lumber starts to peter off and we see the Great Depression and they're starting to try and get factories and then they want to get World War II era military bases and then more factories beyond that, segregation sometimes becomes very inconvenient because they have a factory and they want to protect the best jobs, but at the same time, the owners of the factories, who often come from the North, want to hire black laborers because they're so cheap. So there's this dispute at times, you know, okay, if we open this factory, how many of these jobs will be protected for white people? And sometimes they want all the jobs protected for white people, but of course the yeah. employer will hire black laborers. And then the same is true as well when the city faces the Great Depression. For example, the Red Cross comes in to help try and feed local needy families after the economy collapses. And the people of Hattiesburg, the white city leaders, they say, well, you can't serve needy black people alongside needy white people because that violates our racial code. And the Red Cross says, well, we don't discriminate. And so the city ultimately has to decide whether they're going to allow the Red Cross to violate their segregation norm or if they're going to kick them out. And ultimately, they kick the Red Cross out of City Hall because they don't want them to serve black people along with white people. So in that regard, it can be very inconvenient at times. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the scope of the opportunities for um, African-Americans in the growing town? And how does all of this tie in with the Smith family history? Yeah, so black folks that came to Hattiesburg, they still did not face the same opportunities as, as, as white citizens did. But if you think about, if you start to think about where the black folks came from, then it's important to realize what opportunities they do find in Hattiesburg. And the Smith family patriarch is a perfect example. He came from a family, a long lineage of enslaved cotton pickers, people who were bounded to the land. Even after emancipation, his people were sharecroppers. And so sharecropping in Mississippi, especially if you're black, but even if you're white, could be this horrible system of oppression. In theory, the arrangement sounds, sounds pretty you know, justifiable in that a landowner would give a sharecropping family a piece of their land in exchange for a share of the crop that the sharecropping family grew every year. So in theory, you could eventually save up enough money to eventually buy your own land and move on and become independent. But in reality, a lot of those families started off deeply in debt because they had to borrow. Um, for you know, a donkey or for a plow or for seeds or whatever, in order to just get started, they might pay interest rates you know, in the 20s or 30s or even higher. And then, of course, if they had a bad year, they could end up even more deeply in debt than when they started. And then they were often cheated in the courts, they faced violence, and so a lot of families were just stuck on that land. They might work all year, backbreaking labor in the fields, picking cotton, planting cotton, and not have anything to show for it at the end of the year. In a place like Hattiesburg, where they could took, take a wage labor job, when even as dangerous as work was on the railroad or in the sawmill, when they went into the mill every day, 
they knew that they were going to get paid for that labor. And so this wage labor gave them a sense of independence and autonomy financially that allowed them to free themselves from the land where oftentimes their ancestors had worked. Um, you've already mentioned that the Smith family are exceptional in that um, four of the children become doctors. Um, but talk to us about education in Hattiesburg in the early 20th century if you were an African-American. It's not good, is it? No, it's not good. The, um, the most important thing to share is that the city did not have a black high school until 1921. So what happened here is that, you know, you could send your kid to school, but after they get got past eighth grade, then you had to make a choice. Okay, do I send my kid to a residential high school somewhere outside of the city? Or do I just simply pull them out of school? And of course, for many black families, because it didn't matter if they had a college education or not, because they were black, they were going to have a certain job. So for many black families, they just said, you know what, we're just going to send our kid off to join the workforce now. And so the Smith family, because they had a few more resources, and I think because they valued education a bit more than the average black or white family in Hattiesburg, their two oldest sons, went, you know, they went away to school. They had to take a train up to Jackson, and then they took another train um, to a place near Alcorn State, and then they took a wagon to this residential high school at Alcorn State, which is also where they went to undergrad. Um, you mentioned um, the Smiths doing well in the circumstances, but how different would it be, um, would the experience um, be for your average African-American family living in the Jim Crow South? Um, and is there a difference between living somewhere like Hattiesburg or out in the sticks? So any metric that you, by any metric that you could use to measure, um, black folks in Mississippi were among the poorest, least educated shortest living people in the United States of America. If you look closely in at Mississippi, then places like Hattiesburg have a lot better metrics actually. So they were among the most literate citizens, black citizens in the state of Mississippi. They lived longer lives. Um, they generally earned more, earn more money. And so it's actually, it's a pretty stark contrast if you look at African-Americans who made it to cities versus those who remained on farms. They, were, they faced much better situations in terms of how much education they could obtain and also how much money they could earn. So even though you know, most people did not become like the Smith family, if you got to a city, then that generally puts you in a better situation unless you, know, you were one of the rare black farm owners who was independent in the Jim Crow South. I mean, how do the African-Americans in Hattiesburg reconcile themselves um, throughout the course of your book um, to the totally disparate existence that they, uh, when they look at the white population? Um, a lot of them up and leave, don't they? Yeah, um, a lot of them up and left, sure. But the, the thing about the Smiths is that, you know, they are, especially with the oldest sons, they become pretty, pretty openly recognized as black civic leaders even among white city officials, especially in the 1930s and 1940s as we get into World War II. So they are, I'm not going to say that they were necessarily respected, but they were definitely identified as people that the white community could help work with. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, that didn't mean that they could register to vote. It didn't mean that they could send their kids to any school. And I think sometimes when people are apologists for the Jim Crow system, they say, well, it's okay that the black school received fewer resources because white people paid more taxes. But at the end of the day, the Smith family out-earned 
plenty of local white families, it wasn't about how much money and taxes your family paid. It was about whether or not you were white or black. The poorest yeah. whites had a better educational opportunity in public than the wealthiest black. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But how do they how do they react to this existence, this constant um, expression of this opinion that they are they are not as good as the white population, that they are lesser people? A lot of them see sort of small but continuous um, developments that suggest to them that things might get better. Yeah. And a lot of them, they, they turn inward. They develop their own community. They say, okay, you know what? We're not worried about dealing with, with that, what's going on with the city. They build their own institutions in order to help their own community grow and expand. But then, of course, a lot of people just get up and leave. And so one of the things that the wage labor jobs do by freeing you from the land that you might have otherwise been bound to through sharecropping, it allows you to have some mobility. And so during the first great migration, during World War I in the United States of America, as immigration from Europe is cut off, and as the industrial need for labor goes up, a lot of African Americans are recruited from places like Hattiesburg to go to places like Chicago to work in northern factories. And roughly about half of the black people in Hattiesburg between 1916 and 1920, they just get up and leave. And it is a really big moment for them um, it's the, the Urban League, this national black organization, goes and interviews migrants who had left Mississippi to live in Chicago, and they talk about it like it's a spiritual journey almost. You know, there are, there are moments where when they cross the Ohio River, they, they stop their watches and they start to pray because a lot of them were the sons or, or, or granddaughters of enslaved people going to the north still, you know, resonated with them as being sort of this mythical land of freedom. Now, things aren't entirely all that great, but they were a lot different than they were in the Jim Crow South. So that is certainly one response. And for the Smith family, all of, all of the children consider this. There are six children that survive. They all consider leaving. Um, three of them stay, but all the other ones go. You know, one moves to Michigan and then California. Another one moves to Ohio. Another one moves to Memphis. So, um, yeah, it's a choice that everybody sort of has to make during that period of time before Jim Crow is excised from society. Um, 
you've talked about the ones that left, the ones that stayed, the African-Americans that stayed in Hattiesburg and stayed in the Jim Crow South. Um, I expect the experience was was much varied across Mississippi. Um, but how was Jim Crow maintained? Talk to us about the violence meted out if an African-American did not comply with the order of things. Sure. Well, let me say one thing about the ones that stayed, and then I'll talk about violence. So one of the interesting things about the ones that stayed, particularly with the Smith family and these people that become the black leaders, is that white city officials, they're mortified that all these people start leaving during the Great Depression. And so they identify several local black business owners and clergymen, and they say, well, what can we do to stop this mass exodus? We need these people to work here. And the black folks tell them, among other things, they say, build a school. And so it's precisely because so many people left that those who stayed get a high school in 1921. It's a direct response to this massive outmigration, mm-hmm. which is interesting, I think. But in terms of the, the broader specter of violence in Hattiesburg, um, especially the 1890s, 1910s, 1920s, there is a great deal of overt racial violence. There are several lynchings that happen in the city. And... The, the lynchings that happened in Hattiesburg and across the American South, they are, they are quite remarkable in a couple of different ways. Now, of course, you know, mobs of groups hanging people is not necessarily anything unique to the American South. It's not something that's new to the New South. But this sort of spectator sport, for lack of a better term, really spreads across the American South between 1890 and 1910. So a lot of people might think of lynching as being, you know, a half dozen drunken Klansmen at 4 a.m. But in Hattiesburg and elsewhere, some of these lynchings are broad public spectacles. Yeah. Even when somebody, even when an African-American is abducted from prison or even when an African-American is abducted from their home, they often wait to hold the lynching until more people can come. So one of the, the second lynching that happens in Hattiesburg is this man in 1895 he had been accused of basically being a peeping Tom. And um, he is led to the spot where his supposed crime occurred. And there are over a thousand people in the crowd. The town is still very small at that point in time. And his body is shot 600 to 700 times. And people are participating in this, in these, you know, ceremonial killings. And, you know, it's just absolutely gruesome. Some of them, there are other cases where, you know, a person was accused of something, they might have been arrested, and then this mob comes and pulls them out and drags them through the city, you know, to kill them at what they think is the appropriate spot. Like I said, these mobs might have numbered up to a thousand in Hattiesburg or even larger in other places. It was it's it's really quite stunning and disturbing how many people wanted to participate in these acts of violence. I don't know why, but like when you talk about it, it just the fact that we're talking about 60 years ago as well, we're talking about the 20th century and it, the, the barbaric nature of it. I just, I don't think we're culturally, I mean, I'm English, uh, Lena's Polish English. Uh, you're just completely withdrawn from this whole culture and you listen to this and you just think, man, this is like living memory and this stuff that's happening. It's mind blowing. Absolutely yeah. mind blowing. Yeah, and of course, you know, th- these these things these things happen to individuals, but they're largely meant for the living. You know, they are a lesson for everybody else around who's not killed, 
that this is what could happen to you, right? And of course, it scares the living daylights out of you if you're going to the market or something after one of these things happens, and you know there are people at that market who participated in this murder. And so it affects the people that stay and survive so much. You know, that's something we can probably never quite put our finger on because, of course, they couldn't talk about it. You know, they weren't interviewing local newspaper. How did you feel when this person was killed last week? So it is pretty scary. Can I ask when, when the civil rights movement arrived in Hattiesburg? Yeah, so the older black folks in Hattiesburg, they almost always use a phrase, and that phrase is when the movement came. And they usually identify that day as being January 22nd, 1964. And that is a, that is a day when the National Civil Rights Movement, um, the epicenter of the National Civil Rights Movement was Hattiesburg, Mississippi. There were all these famous actors involved there. There was a massive demonstration outside of the courthouse and a bunch of people were arrested. National news coverage was there. There were cameras just everywhere. And so that's why a lot of people say when the movement came. I think that the movement really came to Hattiesburg a few years earlier when some civil rights activists from just over um, about 100 miles away came in and started establishing the beachhead in Hattiesburg that would lead to that later you know, explosion of the civil rights movement in 1964. <clears throat> Sorry, how does the town react? <clears throat> well, the black community turns out in ways that people really did not expect. So in, in, in most places in the Jim Crow South, you'd be lucky. I mean, it would be a massive victory to get 10% of black, of 10% of the black community to be involved in the civil rights movement in that locale. You know, people were scared. They were worried about their jobs. They just didn't want to do it in many cases. But in Hattiesburg in 1964, during the peak, roughly about a third of the black community, we think, was involved. I mean, it was an incredible level of participation that built out of what they were doing in the churches and, and in the community before that. The local white community, it's, you know, it's, it's really interesting because they keep telling readers in the newspaper, this will all go away. You know, don't do anything. This will all go away. Just calm down. Try and go about your business. These are all, you know, outside agitators, as they like to call them. They have this idea that everybody's from New York City or something, that they're all communists, even though many of these people are local black activists. And there's not really much they can do. During this first day, January 22nd, 1964, the police come to the courthouse and they know that, you know, they could always employ the old method of violence beat up people to get them to scatter. But by that point, they had also seen news of the Freedom Rides, you know, in Alabama, right, and elsewhere in Mississippi. They'd also seen what had happened in Birmingham, mm -hmm. Alabama, a few years before. They know, because those cameras are right there, that if they go and beat those people up, they're going to end up on national and international news. And so they're really powerless to stop it. There's actually one pretty well-known incident where there's a white minister from Cleveland, Ohio, and he's walking around trying to help people register to vote. And these guys jump out of this truck and they beat him up with the tire irons. And his picture is taken and his picture ends up all over newspapers in the country. And, you know, they eventually charge the guys with assault. And that's something that just wouldn't have happened 
certainly wouldn't have happened 20, 30 years before. Mm. And so they're sort of, you know, they're, they're once telling locals, look, this is all going to go away, but they also have to plead with locals, local white people, don't attack these people because it's just going to make things worse. They think the black community is going to stop, but they never do stop. And so, of course, even after many of the volunteers do leave and activists go elsewhere, the black community continues to just excise Jim Crow from their society, empowered by new federal laws, especially the Civil Rights Act, that forces the city to desegregate. The Smiths end up playing an, uh, a personal role in a really important moment, don't they? Well, the Smiths, I think, played a pretty major role in a few different moments. And uh, something that I tried to do in, in the book was um, was talk about the Smiths and the civil rights movement. Because when the movement comes in the 60s and it gets national attention and it's all over the press, from New York to Chicago to L.A., all sorts of stories from Hattiesburg. There's all sorts of people coming to Hattiesburg. And the people that come from the outside they don't ever talk about the older people in the community. They usually talk about like, the Freedom School students and the younger volunteers. And I have a feeling that when they came, they barely even noticed people like the Smith family. So the brothers would have been in their 60s by the time that the civil rights movement started. They were old black, older black men in the community. They were, they were still working, but they were older black men in the community. They weren't leading marches. They weren't giving fiery speeches. And the Smith family on their end, they talk about going to some of these meetings, but they don't say a, a whole lot about it. But I think what's so striking is that the civil rights activists talk about where they met, right? They talk about being there and how electric it was and, you know, all these young people that were so fired up, but they don't know who built the church. They don't know, I think, that some of the older black people in that crowd who they barely paid any attention to had their names on the marble cornerstones outside the church. So it's a really striking thing to me that, you know, I document in the book how and why the Smith family played a role in building this this one particular church and how and why the civil rights movement meets in that particular church, but that they don't really notice the older generation that laid the foundations for that. Um, you mentioned earlier on the Freedom Summer Drive. Uh, just round that off for us, um, because you mentioned the, the gathering and the people coming to register and, and the old man that just wanted to see how you registered. What effect did those actions have in the scheme of things? Well, the Freedom Summer produced a lot of local activists who were drawn into the movement and who had continued to challenge Jim Crow over the following years. So Freedom Summer 1964 starts on the same day Lyndon B. Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act. So a lot of those people, they then went out and they began challenging Jim Crow all over their all over their town. So in the in the Jim Crow South, how the movement actually ended up working was that once you did get the legislation, which was hard to get, then local black activists had to go test it. And so you had to go and you had to prove that you were discriminated against in a restaurant or a library or something like that. Then you had to file a lawsuit. And then the federal government would step in and enforce desegregation. So there are many cases where people who were involved in the Freedom Summer were then challenging local desegregation ordinances. There was actually one case later in the Freedom Summer of 1964 where a group of Freedom School students, they go on sort of this desegregation walk. It's really quite remarkable. But nobody had ever really challenged 
some of these institutions before and they went and they went to two different grocery stores and they went to the public library and they desegregated the the um, two grocery or department stores and then they ended up having to sue to desegregate the library but they did all that in an afternoon you know they were just becoming these activists challenging the old laws that were then altered by the federal government and the, uh, the issue with voting rights is as stunning as it might sound you know African Americans in Mississippi lived in a society where only like 5% of the black voting age population was registered to vote. A lot of people would take that as clear evidence that the black vote was being suppressed, but that's not how things worked in the United States. Southerners would argue that black people weren't registered because they either they couldn't register to vote due to their lack of education, or they just weren't interested. So by going in and trying to register to vote and being denied that right, you then filled out an affidavit that was then submitted to the NAACP that was then used during testimony to back the, the, the need for a Voting Rights Act in 1965. And a lot of those testimonies came from people in Hattiesburg who tried to register to vote but could not. I just, do you know what the irony is, uh, William, that we have spoken to you and you have eloquently taken us all through this story and you wouldn't know just by listening that you are an African-American. Um, having researched Jim Crow, um, being the first generation of your family not born into that system and living through this um, with the people that you study. Um, you mentioned that you had already, um, you were already uh, passionate about the subject when you arrived um, in Hattiesburg. But when you walked into Southern Mississippi University as a faculty member, that must have been a proud moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's something that this country is still dealing with. You know, my father was born in 1948 in Arkansas, and I'm not that I'm not that old. And so, you know, I'm really first generation of my family born outside of that system. And so many of our leaders today and many of the conflicts we're having today are led by people who were actually literally born in the era of Jim Crow. Um, and a lot of them went to school during the era of Jim Crow. Many of them went to segregated schools because of Jim Crow. And so that's something that we're very much still living with as a society. And there are clear wealth discrepancies between black and white, especially in the South, that are directly because of Jim Crow. I mean, there is a very good reason why there are no old wealthy black families in a place like Hattiesburg or in many Southern towns. That's because black people were not allowed to accumulate wealth for generations and generations. And here we are just over 50 years out of it. And a lot of people cite that wealth discrepancy when they talk about, you know, what did the civil rights movement really accomplish? What does it mean that a school is desegregated if black people still, you know, can't, don't own anything, don't have, you know, home equity and things like that? And I think that's a good point, and that comes from Jim Crow. But at the same time, I don't think we can overlook opportunities that newer generations have. You know, as you say, I taught at the University of Southern Mississippi, at Southern Mississippi, and again, people might say, well, you know, what's really the difference now? Black people still, you know, by the metrics, have poor health outcomes, lesser education, much less wealth. But before, they literally could not have stepped foot on campus. And the same is true with my current job. There was no single black professor at UNC Chapel Hill before 1966, and when my father was 18 years old. And, and you so know her, don't you? You know the first. Right, yeah, she still lives. She lives yeah. across the oven. 
in Durham, North Carolina, I mean, it's very much a legacy that we're still dealing with very visibly with our Confederate monument debate, you know, all over the place. But it's something that many people, you know, shaped their lives profoundly and it's certainly shaped wealth um, in this country. And do you think, just finally, um, that there are lessons that Hattiesburg can still teach us about race relations in the USA today? Yeah, I, I think there are many different lessons, but let me just focus on two. One is that African Americans should vote like their lives depend on. There are so many black people who were not allowed to participate in our democracy for so long. And there are so many structures that were crafted to disadvantage them because they could not vote. And there are so many people that died for that right to vote or fought so hard tooth and nail for that right. I think that African-Americans, it should be the single most cultural marker that black folks have. And I realized that th there are many cases where um, African-Americans don't think that either choice, either political party benefits them or has their best interests in mind. But at the same time, I think we should play a role in society and civics and politics in a way that makes sure that black voices are undeniably heard by all sides. I think that's very important. And the other thing is, is that, and you know, I, I really didn't do much of this in the book, but it is astonishing to me what the patriarch of the black family, the Smith family was able to do. I mean, just think about how remarkable that is that he was enslaved and that he went on to raise not just four black high school graduates during Jim Crow, but four college graduates and four doctors. And I can only imagine what their lives might have been, what they could have contributed to the South, to America, had they had every opportunity from the start. You know, yeah. we, have had, we had this movie, Hidden Figures, that came out that celebrated these, these brilliant black female scientists who work for NASA. And, you know... It was it's an excellent film. Hit. It's an excellent film. It's a, it was a huge hit. But the fact of the matter is, for every single one of those women, we lost hundreds of thousands of minds that could have benefited us as a society. And I think that what we should do is make sure that we don't have people that fall through the cracks because of systems that fundamentally suppress their intelligence and also eliminate the potential that they have to contribute to American life. Thank you so much um, for coming on to talk to us today, William. It's been absolutely insightful, interesting, um, sad as well to hear the story um, of the Jim Crow South. I just, it's, as I said, something that completely blows my mind. And I know Alina is gobsmacked as well. <laughs> I am very much so. That's why I've been so quiet. It doesn't happen often. So thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, well, thank you so much for having me. And I think that, especially as we learn these histories and we overturn some of the misconceptions that we've been taught, especially in the South, that we, we're going to have a, a much brighter future. Fingers crossed. Here's hoping. All right. Thank you all so much. Join us tomorrow for a packed day on History Hack. Uh, we have our Polish section poll position in the morning where we will be talking about the history of dance and the impact um, culturally of the poker on Poland in the interwar years. We will then be looking at 
Richard III with Chris Skidmore, MP and former minister. Uh, he talks about the three major phases in Richard's life, that is brother, protector, king. Uh, and then in the evening, we invite you to come down the pub with us. It's a cracker this week. We are debating the most iconic battle in British history. And we have some great guests lined up to come and uh, put their choice forward. And um, Once again, judges not so honourable homes and Dyer will be presiding um, and Alina as well for some of it um while i try and herd cats basically and keep everyone in order thank you to our newest patrons they are jenny bowyer jimmy baggis and kevin huckfield uh, don't forget you can support uh, history hack going forward and we will try and keep going in the aftermath of covid19 you can do this by logging on to our website at historyhack.podbean.com and uh, clicking on become a patron um, it would be muchly appreciated until then stay safe if you possibly can stay at home this is nighthawk signing off when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89 percent off usps and ups make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with stamps.com Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.